0: This is the worst event we've had since I've been here, and that's been 40 years.
1: Hey everybody, that was Hans Pearl on the phone from his home in Beaufort, North Carolina. Hans is one of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's hurricane researchers. His expertise is in how hurricanes affect water quality. Welcome to Well Said, Carolina's storytelling podcast. Each week we tell you the exciting and interesting things our students, faculty, and staff are doing here at Carolina and around the world. This week, it's a conversation with Hans, the Keenan Professor of Marine and Environmental Sciences at the UNC Institute for Marine Sciences in Morehead City. And we'll have an update from him on Hurricane Florence, which made landfall near Wilmington early in the morning on September 14th. Its effects will be felt for some time across the Carolinas. As Florence dissipates, we encourage you to visit unc.live/florence recovery to learn about ways you can help those who have been affected by the hurricane. What happened for this storm to be what you say is the worst you've ever seen?
0: Well, you know, there's sort of two things that happened. One of them was all this rain that got dumped in the coastal zone up to, I hear, 30 inches in places. So that's an immediate, you know, runoff, discharge kind of event that we obviously are going to see right away. But the watershed runoff, you know, the rivers, the Neuse, the Pamlico, the Tar Pamlico, the... Cape Fear to the south. We're talking about it. those rivers not even cresting yet. I've heard that uh, predictions are for the news that it's not supposed to crest until like later this week. So, you know, we're going to be dealing with a lot of runoff and discharge from that that's going to last uh, weeks to months. The real issue here is the slow movement of that storm when it came in. We could have probably handled the Cat 1 to 2 without major damage here if it had been, you know, a normal tracking storm going at, you know, 50 miles or higher. But, you know, this thing was crawling along at 2 to 5 miles per hour.
1: You've been in North Carolina for a long time. How does Hurricane Florence compare to other events you've experienced in the past?
0: I've been here since 78. First 10 years, 12 years, 15 years maybe I was here. We never had a landfall that I can remember. And then in the mid-90s, it just, you know, cranked up, and we've been under this one event per year kind of thing pretty much since then but as far as our location here in Carteret county this is by far the worst one i've seen largely because while it was only a one to two wind intensity wise as you know it moved very slow and it sat out here off cape lookout essentially and we live really close to there it sat out here for over forty eight hours and you know when you have a storm Category One winds for 48 hours and uh, up to almost 20 inches of rain. You know things happen, and and so the ground got saturated. That's when a lot of trees came down and snapped. We had a storm surge here that brought salt water into our in some people's houses. Not actually not in mine, but it got into my garage. I can tell. This is by far the worst one. And just to give you some perspective, I would compare Matthew as a as a mullet blow compared to this thing. A mola blow is a local term for fishermen when there's a big storm and they like to go out fishing right after the storm, catch the fish going up the estuary. The difference is that Matthew, which was actually a little bit stronger even than Florence when it came by, it you know, it zipped by. So we only had about 6 to 12 hours of hurricane strength winds here in Cardiorette County as opposed to 48 hours, and that makes a huge difference in terms of damage. And then on top of it all, all that rainfall that was being pumped up by the storm inland. So I suspect that we won't have the power on here for probably maybe up to two weeks or even more. The power lines uh, just driving down through uh, New Bern and Craven County down here yesterday, there there's lots of power lines leaning over or broken. So, you know, the damage is just incredible. And then, of course, from the... Uh, environmental perspective, from the ecological perspective, we're going to have to deal with this huge bolus of fresh water that is still to come, in many ways, from the rivers into our our estuaries and sounds, and that's a story that, you know, we have uh, seen before with Floyd, which basically filled the entire Pamlico Sound up with fresh water, Matthew, and now this storm. I think this storm is going to be something in between Floyd and Matthew in terms of the total discharge that we're going to see to the rivers and to the sounds. So it'll be a big event, not only socially and economically, but ecologically as well. I'm not sure when we're going to be able to get out there to um, you know, mo- start monitoring the effects.
1: To better understand what Hans is talking about in terms of the ecological impact Hurricane Florence will have on the Carolinas, Let's go back to an earlier conversation we had with him last year. Whenever a hurricane hits, we hear a lot about how the storm has impacted people with flooding and storm surges. But we don't usually talk about how the storm has affected the actual water. Your research has focused on water quality and how storms impact it. So first of all, why is water quality so important?
2: Well, water is one of the key resources we need to live. You know, we need to be able to drink it use it in ways to uh, enhance our lifestyles, wash, shower, swim in it, recreational value of water. And let's not forget that uh, water has a lot of resources that we uh, value very much, including fisheries, aquaculture. Agriculture depends a lot on water, of course. And now, you know, agriculture depends on good water quality, particularly when you consider things like organic grown crops and stuff like that. So there's multiple reasons why water quality is important and why it's important to uh, maintain good water quality, but probably even more important, understand changes in water quality so we can start doing something about improving it.
1: What actually constitutes good water and bad water? How do we classify them?
2: Yeah, well, good water quality is water that you can use without uh, having to remove anything or uh, treat it in, in many ways to, to, to get rid of pollutants, for example. There are other issues with water quality that are really important that uh, you might not think are very important. They're sort of out of sight, out of mind issues. For example, algae blooms. Uh, you know, we all know that algae live in the water and some lakes and streams and estuaries are a little bit more greener than others, and we usually don't worry about that very much. But we can get some bad players in there that can produce toxins, for example, that affect everything from the organisms that eat them to humans need to consume the water. That's not very obvious you know, when you look at a system many times. So there needs to be a lot of good diagnostic capabilities for, for understanding what's usable, uh, acceptable, and fishable, and drinkable, and eatable. Water quality is probably uh, one of the most important resources we have.
1: How does poor water quality impact people? And then how does it impact the ecosystem?
2: Well, algae blooms affect people in various ways. Uh, well, first of all, let's just uh, uh, define what a bloom is. Uh, a bloom is, uh, is an excessive growth of uh, algae in the water that usually turns the water uh, green or sometimes even red or yellow. Uh, so there's an aesthetic issue there. Uh, No one wants an algae bloom in front of their expensive home on the water, for example. And then we get into issues of uh, um, uh, ecosystem effects. If there's too much algae growing in the water, when those algae die and sink, they go to the bottom and all that uh, algal material consumes oxygen and can lead to uh, depletion of oxygen in the bottom waters. That can lead to things like fish kills, for example, or bad odors, uh, hydrogen sulfide, for example, uh, and uh, essentially making the water unusable for drinking water purposes, uh, and even irrigation purposes in some places. And then lastly, uh, the organisms that form the blooms can produce toxic substances. Now, they don't mean to do that to kill people. Uh, Most of these toxic substances are metabolites that are produced by the algae for all sorts of reasons. They're their own competition with other algae and survival. It just happens that a lot of those metabolites can be toxic to people. And, uh, and domestic pets, for example, um, and even smaller animals that consume uh, the algae themselves, and that can lead to uh, chronic diseases such as liver disease, uh, neurological problems, and even death.
1: Now that we know a little bit more about what water quality is and how it impacts people and the environment— How do hurricanes impact water quality?
2: Well, their impact can be anything from very little to huge. And that has to do with how much rainfall a storm dumps onto the watershed and the runoff that we get from that event coming into the system. In the case of Floyd, for example, which was really kind of the first big hurricane that we uh, did a lot of water quality monitoring on, and that occurred in September of 1999. And many listeners probably remember that it flooded most of the eastern part of North Carolina, and towns and cities were isolated for up to six weeks. But Ferrymine was out there, you know, collecting data all the time and what we found with floyd for example was that the salinity changes that occurred in the pamlico sound rapidly uh, made the habitat for certain fish species and shellfish species like crabs for example uninhabitable Uh, That information was very useful in terms of, you know, having the state fisheries management folks understand why there shouldn't be fishing going on in some of those places, because what was left there was very important in terms of providing larvae for the next seasons, for example, for settlement. And also there were issues with fish disease from the rapid changes in salinity and also pollutants that came into the system. And so there were uh, quite significant increases in things like sores on fish, fish diseases that... uh, were mainly a ramification of that storm event. And then lastly, the nutrients that came in with the huge bolus of fresh water that came into the system, they didn't just flush out of the system because Pamlico Sound is a a lagoonal system. It's essentially like a big bathtub out there that holds the water, and that water exchanges with only a few narrow inlets to the coastal ocean, But what happened with Floyd was that the bathtub got filled. In fact, it overflowed. But many of the pollutants and nutrients and sediments that came down with all that uh, water stayed in the system. The system essentially was a trap for those nutrients. And we saw algae blooms, for example, uh, six to nine months after Floyd hit the system that were still largely due to the nutrients that came in from Floyd. Now, we're actually looking at Matthew in a similar way, because Matthew, like Floyd, was a very wet storm event. And there's still recharge coming, for example, from groundwater and other sources coming into the system. So Matthew, while it wasn't as big an event as Floyd, it did have this residual impact on the system That we're still monitoring and we're also really looking at other factors that may come into play in terms of long-term water quality issues like the organic matter that came down with all the farmland that was inundated and and even like uh, flushing of swamps and uh, places upstream that all essentially went into this giant bathtub system. And the the bathtub is still working its way through all these nutrients. You know, they don't just get chewed up and you get one algae bloom and it's all over. There are long-term ramifications. So the thing we're really concerned about with storms now is not only the uh, size of these storms in terms of how much water, but the frequency. Because we can see now from Floyd and Matthew and even other storms uh, that have impacted our coastal and estuarine systems that the systems require a certain amount of recovery. You know, they need to work their way through the pollutants and nutrients that come into the system and then get back to some kind of normal state that would be you know, desirable habitat for fish species, shellfish, et cetera. And what we're seeing now with this increased frequency is the system is still recovering when it's being hit by a new system. And this is what happened with Floyd and Dennis and Irene back in 99. We had a kind of a glimpse of it. But given the fact that there are projected increases now in not only intensity but frequency of these storm events, and we've certainly seen that in North Carolina. I mean, there's been a big upswing since the mid-'90s. So we've seen these events and what they can do, and also the concern that we have now about this increased frequency of these major events. The other thing that hurricanes do that we're just starting to learn about a bit more uh, over the past, I don't know, five years or so, is how they affect the carbon cycling in the system. And you know carbon is not thought about as a nutrient like nitrogen and phosphorus, for example, in the system, but carbon plays a very important role in terms of our climate, for example. The amount of carbon dioxide that we're putting into the atmosphere has an effect, and the greenhouse effect, obviously. We've put equipment on the ferries now that can actually monitor the flux of carbon, the carbon dioxide that's coming into the system versus what's going out. Because Pamlico Sound is like a big bank, you know, when you think of it in terms of carbon. There's a lot of carbon stored up in there from what comes in from the watershed, what comes in from the marshes around the system, what's being produced in the system. So from a larger scale climatic perspective, uh, big systems like Pamlico Sound can influence the flux of CO2 in and out of the uh, atmosphere. And we think it might play an important role in the ocean, too, because, you know, Hurricanes travel over the ocean, so they're also affecting the carbon dioxide equilibrium between the atmosphere and the ocean.
1: If we're going to be getting these hurricanes more frequently, and that means less time for the system to flush this all out, is there anything we can actually do to help the situation?
2: Well, two major things. One is uh, given the fact that we're going to be, that we're into a more stormy world, so to speak, you know, we need to uh, deal with this in the watershed because that's really where the nutrients and a lot of the pollutants are coming from. So better management of our lands is an obvious step that would help for example applying fertilizers at times when we know we don't have these large scale events and applying them sparingly so that we know that you know if you apply extra fertilizer for example in August and September well there's a good chance that a lot of that is going to wash into our waters better fertilizer management is certainly should be a big priority Things like no-till agriculture to reduce the loss of sediments. Impervious surfaces play a huge role. Stormwater runoff, for example, in cities and urban areas, and having appropriate uh, retention ponds to catch that water so that it doesn't immediately flow into our waterways, that can help a lot in terms of retaining the nutrients on land or processing them on land and not allowing them to immediately fertilize our waters, which are already over fertilized. Constructing artificial wetlands and making sure that we protect our swamps and natural habitats where water flows through and can be processed to remove some of those nutrients are also really important steps. We've done a good job in the Neuse Basin with uh, riparian buffers. These are um, strips of land around agricultural and even urban areas that are vegetated so that the plants on the land actually take up a large amount of those nutrients as opposed to the water just flowing off the lands into the receiving waters. So those are all really good strategies that are going to play a bigger role as we are into a stormier world. Now, taking the other end of it, you know, the receiving end, the estuaries and coastal systems, we need to manage our fisheries to be responsive to these events. For example, we know that fish are more susceptible to disease, for example, when we have these large-scale events. We know that they're more stressed in terms of the habitat that they have to live in, particularly shellfish. So probably protecting some of those species at times or all the time to, you know, be able to have them reproduce adequately under stressful conditions, for example, is really important. So there are going to be periods where you know we may not be able to fish our favorite fish species because they've been stressed and need to be protected. Or we may need to focus more on aquaculture for oyster, for oyster restoration projects and also restore oysters and other shellfish in areas that are not going to be as impacted as we've seen in some of our estuaries, for example, out in the coastal waters, which maintain their salinity much, much longer. So there are lots of uh, management steps that can and should be taken in terms of protecting our natural resources out there too.
1: If you'd like to learn how Carolina has already helped those affected by Florence and find out what you can do to help them, please go to unc.live slash recovery. Thanks for listening to this episode of Well Said. See you next week.